Abraham Lincoln Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. So there are a lot of reasons to hate the whole woke ideology thing. Uh, I mean, you could start with how it's just completely illogical. It's witch hunty. It's demeaning to people of color. It's racist. It is indoctrinating your kids into Marxism in schools. It is tearing apart the family. I could go on for quite some time. A lot of reasons to hate it. Jack uh, touched on briefly that piece from Eric Levitz in New York Magazine, which I thought was absolutely terrific. His, his point, or his title being, when keeping it woke gets racist, liberals should say so. Yeah. You know, when, when your own side starts acting like lunatics... And racists, you got to stand up or the peeps are going to wake up to the fact that your side is crazy and evil. And it's it's really well written. We'll post it at armstrongandgetty.com so you can give it a read if you like. And and he goes into the Virginia election and the CRT and the, the whole dodge that we're not teaching CRT. Well, yes, you are. You're teaching a version of it. CRT praxis, according to some people, it's in effect CRT. Uh, John McWhorter, who is an, a, a linguist and a uh, scholar at Columbia University, Columbia University, and, and uh, a genius, uh, and a black man, is uh, he's been uh, writing about this. And in fact, I tried a couple of times to order his new book, but my password didn't work. So, Barnes and Noble, uh, maybe drop me a note or something, because I'm trying desperately to give you my money and you won't let oh, me. Oh, a real paper book you're trying to buy, huh? Eh, I was going to nook book it. I haven't done that in years. Oh, okay. Ah, uh, they're, I'd say 90% of their business is probably electronic. Well, I don't know that. It's a substantial chunk. Anyway, uh, so McWhorter's book is called Black Racism, and he is making the rounds. We're trying to get him uh, to do an extra large podcast with us. But he's talking about the problem from the perspective of a proud, intelligent black man for all this uh, critical race theory stuff. Uh, let's start with clip number 90. Well, it's actually pretty simple. We have an idea that... In order to show that you're a good person, in order to show that you know that racism exists, what you're supposed to do is treat black people like children. And I know that nobody is thinking that consciously, but the problem is that we've gone from trying to make life better for black people who need help to what I really do think of as a religion, where the guiding tenet is to show that you know racism exists, to make gestures that show that you know racism exists, but not to actually be concretely concerned with helping black people in the real world who need help. Uh, That's one of the major premises of his book, that the whole woke thing has become more a religion than a political philosophy, and he kind of, you know, puts them each uh, side by side to compare and contrast and that sort of thing. He was on Bill Maher the other night talking about this, which I'm, I'm glad to see. Yeah, maybe we ought to grab some of those clips, too. But I have a fig, uh, feeling, you know, he's making roughly similar points. But mm-hmm. anyway, uh, clip number 91. Supposing that to show that you know racism exists means that you exempt black people from serious competition in terms of testing, in terms of evaluation, in terms of moral judgment, out of the sense that you understand that black people have had a bad past and that therefore you have to change the rules. But what you end up doing is treating black people black Americans, as the first people in the 300,000 years of human history who are not responsible for their actions, who cannot be held to the standards that everybody else is held to, with the idea that that is advanced thought rather than condescension and tokenism. 
He, uh, like I, like we, are absolutely in favor of taking a look at educational achievement. And, you know, if you want to break it down by race, if you have a serious problem with black kids achieving, then you have to understand why they're not achieving and what can be done to help them achieve. Upward mobility, not squashing the top. Not, for instance, canceling all the gifted programs for uh, students because they seem to be disproportionately white and Asian. That doesn't help the black people. That's signaling you're part of the religion. I am concerned. Look how concerned I am. But as he says, it's not doing anything to actually help the little black kids achieve. And uh, clip 92. This is a real problem because I know that a lot of people think they're doing good out there. And I know that a lot of us black people think that we're doing good by assisting white people in portraying us this way and treating us this way. But I think if we pull the camera back and even just think about what civil rights was, say, 50 years ago, we realize that this is not sociopolitical progress. This is kabuki. And I really do think it needs to stop. I hate that getting rid of the the, the gifted program stuff. But I just, I think the biggest damage is done on the other end with the not the the nobody fails stuff. Oh yeah, that's jeez. At, at least the the other end, the smart people, whether their parents are on their own, will probably find some way to take advantage of their smartness. But the 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 other end, all the people that are struggling to 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 just keep passing them along. Right. And and acting like, no, you're fine. You'll be you'll just go out into the world as an adult and be OK. God, that's practically criminal. You know, I found out to my my surprise the other day that my blood pressure had gotten high again. And that's that's the one health thing I battled my whole life and always will. Um, and, and it is very much like I had decided. The, the the thing to do, the most important thing to do is stop measuring my blood pressure. The kids are not achieving. The kids of color are not achieving. So what we must do is stop measuring it. We must stop even asking the question. That is the solution. And or we need to blame white people for it. How about we focus on the what's happening and what's not happening for the kids that we want to achieve better. And, and by the way, sorry to get political on you. If they're in a crappy school, let them get out of it. Teachers unions are against that, aren't they, Randy Weingartner? I remember when I learned a few years back that uh, no, we don't we don't hold kids back anymore. That's not something. I thought, why? Right. right. Why? Well, the stigma and the way. Oh, so it's better. It's better to have them move on to another grade completely ill prepared for it than oh, whatever I... stigma that goes with you being held back. Oh my God! And I'd meant to bring this up earlier today. We talked about it briefly yesterday. Kids, the kids in Oakland schools staged a walkout because the whole restorative justice, racially sensitive discipline thing where you're terrified to discipline anybody of color because the, well, disproportional suspension rates, blah, 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 blah. So now the schools are so chaotic and dangerous, the kids can't learn and the kids are walking out demanding more discipline in schools. How's your utopia coming along, you unicorn-riding softheads? When the kids want more discipline in school, the adults have really let them down. Oh, my gosh, and you're so cheating the poor kids who are trying. That's like the kids in a house say, hey, Mom, Dad, could we have a little structure around here? A little uh, little order, like a little bedtime or a little clean my room? Can we have any of that? I've eaten five cupcakes. You've said nothing. 
Here, let me eat a sixth. You're going to say anything. And it's 3 o'clock in the morning, and I'm still up. Is there right. anybody watching me? Swigging out Mountain Dew. Right. <laughs> Kids, really all people, humans, appreciate knowing where the limits are. Those limits should be fair. They should be logical. They should be reasonably and consistently enforced. But you have to have limits. And this utopian idea of the classroom is, well, the the kid is openly insubordinate to the teacher, maybe gives him a shove, maybe says, F you, walks out in the hallway, smokes a cig, comes back in, disrupts the class. Well, you certainly can't, you can't suspend them because of disproportionate impact. You people, evidently you're new to Earth. You've never observed how human beings behave. You have no insight into humanity. And and the fact that they would not only, in small numbers, achieve some sort of status in the world of education, but that the bulk of the educational intelligentsia would be people who think like this? I did. It's enough to make me pull out my hair. Don't pull out your hair. I don't see how that would help anything. Well... Especially because it's thick and lustrous and lovely. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. The ocean carriers, most headquartered in Europe or Asia, say demand for cargo space keeps rising. They blame a shortage of truckers at the port. Take an empty in, take a full container out. Where is this falling apart? In the fact that we because of the booking systems have restrictions on the type of container that you can bring in. Matt Schrapp of the Harbor Trucking Association told us there's no driver shortage at the ports. He says it's the antiquated booking system that's gumming up the works. Schrapp told us normally truckers make an appointment to return an empty container before picking up a full one. But with so little space at the ports, there are new restrictions on even the color of container that can be returned. Truckers can wait hours in line only to be turned away because there's no room. So there's not a driver shortage? We just got an antiquated system? How many times have you heard there's a driver shortage as we've been going through this whole supply chain thing? A lot of finger pointing as they got into on 60 Minutes last night. There is a lot of finger pointing. Yes, there is. The truckers blame the terminals. The terminals blame the shippers. The retailers blame the truckers and the shippers. How do you get that contentious group? to sit at the table, stop pointing fingers, and actually clear out this backlog. That's been the toughest part. We haven't moved the needle yet, but it's not for a lack of trying. and We're going to have to just double down. So many different spots in the supply chain where it gets clogged up. We typically work about 19 hours a day here. It's that 3 to 8 a.m. shift that we've added and tried to get others to work with us during those times as well. So you might be working 24-7, but the warehouses are not. That's right. So they have no place for these goods to go after they get off the ship at 3 o'clock in the morning. And there you've just diagnosed the problem. The cargo has nowhere to go. We've got to get a workforce in the warehouses and the trucking industry that are complementary to all this cargo that's coming in right now. Well, and add to that the problem with the longshoremen's unions and the the regulations that regulate how many containers can be stacked at once. And it's just the pressure of the current situation exposed so many flaws in our system. I actually thought, can we play, uh, let's see, which clip was that, 40 real quick about the port system? See, Singapore alone is building a $20 billion container terminal right now. How did we get to this? I mean, I've seen the ports in Rotterdam and in Hong Kong, and they are 
light years ahead of us. One problem with the U.S. system is we the ports are owned by the cities that they're in. And the, ultimately, the capital expenditure for building terminals, for dredging, for, you know, for investing in these ports comes down to decisions made at a local level. You know, this is a national infrastructure. It's to serve the entire country. So there's a real role for federal government to come in and step in. Yeah, they didn't get into it near as much as I would have liked to on 60 Minutes about the role of the Longshoremen Union. Google yourself if you want to Longshoremen and Automated Ports and look at all the articles going over many, many years. Every time that that issue comes up of automating either the unloading of the ships or the stacking of the the uh, the big containers or whatever it is and the fighting against that. Yeah, yeah. In that last clip, dude seemed to be advocating a federal role in yeah. the courts. I'm not sure what that role ought to be, um, but it's absolutely a, a disadvantage that we have that, A, we were way ahead of most of the world in industrializing, and so, you know, we we had gigantic uh, functioning ports many decades ago, but they're aging and the technology's not keeping up, and, and we're, we're it, it, sometimes our lack of coordination, call it individual states and cities' efforts, sometimes that's an advantage. Joe. Sometimes it's a disadvantage. Talking up autocracies all of a sudden. Well, Chairman, she has some points. No, I'm kidding. Here's your freedom-loving quote of the day. Sit along by Dave. Friend of Armstrong and Getty over 20 years. Thanks, Dave. Dear friends, I came across this while doing a little light reading on Plessy versus Ferguson and the Brown and Brown versus Board of Education, two famous Supreme Courts, one abysmal, one terrific. I listened to a podcast about uh, one of your big Supreme Court rulings yesterday. Hey, I'll talk about that later. I can't swear to this, but Dave claims it, and he's an honest man. Plessy uh, was 7-1 to one in favor of separate but equal hmm. way back in the day. The dissenting opinion by Justice John Marshall Harlan said, and I quote, and this is our freedom-loving quote of the day, Our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. Amen to that. That was when a young black man, barely black, but black enough by the standards of the day, was getting on a train, I think, and they uh, couldn't sit with the white people. Yeah, separate but equals fine, said the court in a notorious case. Uh, and then Dave goes on to say how disappointing he disappointed he would be seeing that we we're moving back to segregation under the guise of equity. Yeah. Well, there are those who are attempting it, Dave. I, I, I think that more and more Americans are waking up to how insidious. That now is. you go into college and they say white people over there, brown people over there, black people over there. And everybody uh, immediately goes that oh, direction. Yes, yes, a safe space. This yeah. is wonderful. Signs off WICCUWAWA. Wish I could come up with a witty acronym. Thank you, Dave. Don't <laughs> worry about it. Uh, Gents, writes uh, Phoenix Steve. Always good to hear from Phoenix Steve. Joe, you've been describing how the money flush of three to five trillion dollars, God knows how much it is, is going to turn America socialist as only a negative. Uh, blah, blah, blah. But look on the bright side. It will certainly help with the obesity problem. Under the Build Back Venezuela plan, the Venezuelan diet plan, the average citizen there, you remember, lost 40 pounds due to the lack of food on the shelves. Um, take a look at the shelves, folks. Uh, with a healthier, leaner populace, there will be less need for a high-class medical program so we can save money there. Look how cheap the Cuban medical plans are. It's like going oh, to. You can swing on the next pitch and hit a home run. I'm sure with that count, you'll get a good pitch. Uh, and then that's just too confusing, Steve. Anyway, the Build Back Venezuela plan is actually a secret obesity plan. I get it. (laughs) 
Uh, let's see. Joe writes, Stop disparaging third world countries. Constantly hear that empty shelves in grocery stores are, quote, like living in a third world country. Being a resident of a third world country, Honduras, I thought I would send a couple of pictures of what our grocery stores look like. No supply chain issues here. Does that make the U.S. a fourth world country or just incompetent? Maybe just somebody, maybe somebody should look at the fact that the Longshoremen's Union has forced ports to continue 1960s at best technology so that not one of them will lose their jobs. Someone should introduce them to the Wagon Wheel Makers Union. <laughs> Oof. LGB. That's Joe. There's so many reasons our supply chain is all messed up, and we'll uh, talk about some of that from the 60 Minutes piece last night coming up. I got to read up on Honduras. Maybe I'll come hang with you, Joe. Hmm. We'll go to the grocery store and just admire the full shelves and, I don't know, pick up a little something for dinner. Jeremy, beautiful St. George, Utah, writes, uh, The scam of electric cars. And I have more information on this later, but this is a great little note. The biggest scam with electric vehicles uh, in the sale to the public. What is it people think they're going to... What do they think they're doing when they buy an electric car? They think they're reducing emissions and saving the planet. But, well, some people do. Some people just like them because Teslas are great cars, for instance. But anyway, but the truth is that they're just pushing their fossil fuel combustion emissions to a different system. The electricity has to be made somehow, and only 10% of U.S. power comes from wind and solar. The majority comes from fossil fuels and nuclear. So when you think about it, electric cars are more likely to be nuclear cars than solar-powered. Wall Street Journal's got a good uh, what it costs to drive an electric car out today. It's pretty good. Uh, we'll run through some of that if you've been thinking about it with the high gas prices. Maybe you are, but uh, hey, you might want to think twice. Armstrong and Getty. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. Here's Armstrong and Getty. So a couple of stories about urban decay and an effort to turn it around. First of all, as we span the continent, a quick look into the West Coast. Uh, readers were stunned when the San Francisco Chronicle actually asked in their website slash newspaper, quote, residents and city leaders are searching for answers amidst uh, rampant crime. Should they tolerate burglaries as part of city living and focus on barricading homes? <laughs> who, who ever considers tolerating burglaries ever? Wait a minute. There's more. You're right. You're absolutely right. But should repeat offenders, these are repeat Burglars, friends. Should repeat offenders get rehabilitation services or be incarcerated so they can't commit more crimes? Two men with long criminal histories got caught for stealing bikes. What should San Francisco do about them? They asked in pained tones, just confused. Throw them in jail for as long as you can. That would be my answer. I would say dab up your unicorn's tears and... and 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 suck the suck them out of the cloth you used for their magical healing powers, friends. That's what you should do, you bunch of friggin' nut jobs. Unbelievable. This is an actually actually uh, the piece explores the city's pursuit for criminal justice reform while debating quote how to manage the rates of property crime that for years have been among the highest in the nation. And of course, Twitter reacted the way Twitter should, including some fairly. Uh, you know, substantial humans who you may have cause of, uh, or I'm sorry, you may have heard of. I'm trying to read while I talk. Think about how far gone the city of San Francisco must be for its major newspaper to write the first sentence below as if it's a reasonable civic, civic question. Should we just get used to burglaries and barricade ourselves in our house? 
A couple of people talked about how many friends and, and loved ones have fled the city and that they have to be next. Predictable. So moving along to a rather notable conversation that just took place in New York City, Gotham, between a so-called Black Lives Matter uh, activist, Hawk Newsom, and the mayor-elect, Eric Adams. First of all, let's see, hear from... Uh, Eric Adams, who is the mayor-elect because he ran on Law & Order in a, in, point. A, in a bluest city as you can get in America. Absolutely true. So first, uh, clip a What? I've, oh, I've got the wrong list in front of me. The... Uh, the, uh, the the Hawk Newsom clip, Michael, I think is 11. If they think that they're going to go back to the old ways of policing, then we're going to take to the streets again. There will be riots, there will be fire, and there will be bloodshed. Keeping in mind inciting a riot is a crime. He was debating the plan for a return to tougher policing with Adams. Now... Adams, the mayor-elect who ran on cracking down on the rampant, dangerous crime in New York City, which was, until Bill de Blasio took over, one of the safest cities in the world, per capita. Black guy, former cop, saying, no, 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 not defund the police, refund the police. Right, right. Uh, so he said to ignore the history of, of uh, some of the excesses. They're talking about the anti-crime squad, which was a substantially plainclothes unit, which was absolutely involved in some of the cases that everyone g- condemned as being wrong. The choking death of Eric Garner, uh, the death of Am- Amadou Diallo, who was shot. He had a cell phone in his hand, etc., But Adams, through his campaign, promised to bring back a reinvented version of the anti-crime unit that was tasked with firearm busts as well as a crackdown on violent crime and hard drugs. Oh, remind me, I have a hard drugs thought to throw in. Um, To me, it's perfect. A guy saying, we had a squad, we had policies that made the city safe. There were excesses that were regrettable. You removed the squad. And the policies, and now the city is incredibly unsafe. A shocking rise in crime that everybody hates. So what we're going to do is revisit those policies, refine them, take a hard look at the excesses, and make sure we prevent them. And this guy, because BLM is not about logic, it's not about policy, it's not about good governance, it's about power, and it's about Marxism. So this guy says, we'll be at his front door, we'll be at Gracie Mansion, we'll be in the streets if he allows the police to abuse us. Well, he's not saying he's going to. There will be riots and fire and bloodshed. Okay, fine, fine. You know, congratulations all you corporations that poured tens of millions of dollars into this crazed Marxist organization. Yeah, no kidding. Fools. Unbelievable. At one point during the meeting, the mayor-elect grew agitated with New Hawk's sister, who's also a... Uh, activist, quote-unquote, who said, politicians shuck, jive, and use rap quotes, but don't make real changes. You need to be corrected, Adam said, talking over it. You need to be corrected based on what you're saying. Don't tell me I need to do this. Say, we need to do this. I put my body on the line for my community, so I'm not here for folks to come and say, I'm going to hold you accountable. No, it's us, us working together, etc. So I wish the guy well. I think his... His progress, his success, his failure are going to be watched very, very closely, and uh, and I think they could be, uh, they could do a powerful amount of good. Well, it's a history of mankind that when uh, when there's enough disorder, people are willing to put up with practically anything 
to have order return. In this case, uh, it's it's in uh, in the form of Eric Adams, who's just a good, decent citizen who wants law and order. But you've seen it around the world where they they are welcoming the Taliban in a lot of those villages because they've had disorder for so long. The Taliban is better than this. You saw it in uh, in Iraq when they were allowing ISIS. Al Qaeda is better than just the mayhem we have here. So people will 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 will, will welcome anything to have order return to their city. Right, right. So, And there's no indication that this guy's over the top or no, a fascist or no. pro-beatings or anything like that. He seems like a, you know, a straight shooter. No, just my point is if, if crime gets bad enough, if disorder gets bad enough, people want that to end at any cost. And so the fact that New York, as blue as it is, is turning toward law and order is not surprising to me. They've had enough of it. When is it going to happen for San Francisco and Portland and Seattle? And L.A. and lots of places. Right, exactly. That is the question. But Black Lives Matter wants the the police to go away, wants prisons to go away and jails to go away. They don't have a shred of common sense on their side. And yet, you know, the the giant donations. So anyway, my hard drugs note that I wanted to throw in real quickly. We, among very, very few others, have been talking about the new meth that's on the street. Big, giant article uh, in The Atlantic, an excerpt from a brand-new book. We're working to interview the author in one of our extra-large podcasts. And and the book's about fentanyl and hard drugs, but it's also about this new meth that when the cartels couldn't get ephedrine anymore, they started to make it with a different chemical process so they could keep their enormous profits going from the streets of uh, the blue cities where meth has been essentially legalized. The problem with this new chemically, uh, the, the new chemical composition is that it rots people's brains. It causes severe mental illness problems quickly. Not after years of rampant abuse, but after weeks. It's incredibly dangerous. Okay. If you're not up to speed on this. So I was talking to a, uh, a gentleman yesterday who is in, he works in a drug, uh, rehab, uh, the addictions center of a hospital. And I said, hey, it's it's funny I should run into you. I explained what I just explained. And he said, no, I haven't seen that article. I haven't heard that. But he said, all of a sudden, we have, and it's a very, very recent phenomenon, people who can no longer speak. They're meth addicts, but they can't speak, which was one of the things the article in The Atlantic was talking about. He said, we have people that can't write their names. and And we've been wondering, what the hell is going on? And he mentioned another several symptoms that are mentioned in this article. I can't believe all of America isn't talking about this. This is why you have crazy junkies clogging your streets and parks and sidewalks. This is why it has gotten so much more dangerous to walk down the street. And, you know, it used to be you walk by a bunch of beggars or whatever, and usually nothing happened. Now they start screaming at you and throwing things at you. That's that's probably this drug. And and look, let's let's remove the question of sympathy or culpability or, or anything from the equation. Everybody's trying to figure out who are all these bums and junkies, quote unquote, homeless people. And the question's often asked. We've asked it. Are they just mentally ill, which is a terrible situation, and I am more than willing to help a mentally ill person. Are they drug addicts? Are they mentally ill because they're drug addicts? Well, a substantial answer has been laid in our laps. These tweakers are rotting their brains. It's an all-out emergency. It's DEFCON 1 on America's streets, and nobody's talking about it. We need to crack down hard on meth. And I'm a libertarian. I don't care if you get high all day long. But we have to crack down on this meth because it is 
killing thousands of Americans, and it is ruining America, ruining America's cities. I wish I'd hear one more news outlet mention it other than us. Then I would think maybe it's uh, gaining some traction. Haven't heard a word of it anywhere. Yeah, we've got to get this guy on. We've got to do a podcast with him and then chop it up and get it on the air. I mean, this this might be the headline for America's cities, and it's getting no traction because Trump's not involved, and it's not about race. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. So I came across this in the Washington Post yesterday about the homicide rate in America. It is... Uh, it's something from from the year 2019 to the year 2020. We had the largest jumps jump in homicides year to year, probably in our nation's history. It's around 30 percent, wasn't it? It's just insane. Like yeah, yeah. Probably the biggest jump in one year. And everybody was guessing, you know, is it the COVID? Is it the the protests led to what? What was it? What was it? Well, this year, a whole bunch of cities are up from last year. And the Washington Post had this opinion piece. The title was this. I used to run a police homicide unit. The rage behind so many of today's murders feels new. Let me read a little bit of this, and then we'll discuss. Because I have my own kind of half-baked theories. A disturbing factor is the pure, irrational rage that seems increasingly to drive these grim numbers. Uncontrollable anger has always accounted for some murders, of course, But I've been struck in recent years by the greater role it plays in these cases. In recent years, the data showed that inane, petty disputes increasingly are sparking killings. People die over absurdities. Dibs on a car wash stall, stolen weed, getting cut off in traffic, beer pong gone wrong. More and more guns are likely to be involved. Nationally, the firearm firearm homicide rate increased 26% between 2010 and 2019. That's, you know, some of you might think it's the gun is the reason. One dark thread winds through murder statistics. In part, it explains when ordinary, everyday irritation or resentment might turn to homicidal fury. Killers generally feel powerless over their circumstances, having lost control over their lives. They may commit violence in an attempt to regain a semblance of it. And the ultimate exercise control over life is taking someone else's. The pandemic, no doubt, exacerbated that sense of helplessness. A dangerous sense of lurking chaos has been in the air. I think we all feel that. Uh, add to that the contemporary turn towards simple meanness online and in the media, with bullying often admired and nastiness rewarded. Death threats have replaced debate. We've seen that in recent weeks. Inch by inch, rage becomes the norm, and then that poisonous atmosphere, tragedies are inevitable. I'll read one more a bit from this article, and then we can discuss One thing each of us can contribute is consciously working to lower the social rage level in America, says this person that used to run a homicide department. Try to make empathy and compassion a reflex and not instant anger at anyone who has offended you online or in the real world. If a rage culture has been created, it also can be rolled back. Well, I'm sure that's true. I'm hoping you're right that we can. But um, she touched on a bunch of different things there. The um, uh, social media stuff, the anger online, the pandemic. Um, well, first of all, I guess I'll just hit you with what do you think it is? Well, I she, think- she she she's starting with the premise that she feels like rage is definitely part of it. She's she was in the homicide department for decades and decades and decades. She's now retired. Looking back over the years, she says uh, fury over minor incidents 
That has changed. Yeah, it's it's not the guns. It's a cultural norm. And you have to keep in mind that the vast majority of murders committed are committed in big cities uh, or medium-sized cities. And there is a culture of uh, the slightest grievance, the slightest questioning of one's manhood or attempt to uh, get over on somebody else. They can escalate to death. The idea that this is worth killing someone over for a lot of us, is a tiny, tiny list at the very top of a very grim pyramid. For a lot of America, it is absolutely any dispute. You question my manhood, I will kill you. Yeah, um, obviously that could play a role. I wonder if people just aren't walking around with, uh, with we're just walking around with more rage on average than we ever have before. So if you're walking around, everybody knows this. If you're if you're angry, if you're under a lot of stress. It's often the minor thing that makes you twist off. That's sure. when you snap at your kids, your spouse, your coworker, whatever. It's just you're you're already angry, so it's, ah, you you, know, you twist over off something. So, uh, so I'm not sure at that moment it's a, um, uh, I've chosen to make this minor incident a a uh, a DefCon one event. It's that we're walking around so angry all the time. What I wonder is why are we walking around? so angry all the time my my own my own theory is there's something going on around this whole social media isolation not connected to people thing Mm -hmm. that is huge like a complete change in the way homo sapiens have existed forever and it's making us crazy yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, you have to keep in mind, if you're talking about murder, a lot of it is gang-related. A lot of it. Good point. And, and you've got to go with the, uh, the, the George Floyd protests and the, the cops pulling back and the lack of support from city councils and the rest of it have turned the streets over to junkies and gangbangers. So there's that. I, I, that is not an argument against what you're saying because I, I think what you're saying is absolutely true too. And it is part probably of the stew of causes that's caused the murder rate to rise. Uh, and it's also, you know, part of the cause for a lot of ills in society. But I think that the murder rate has more to do with urban areas and policing, honestly. Hmm. I'm not sure the gangs of Chicago were walking around all tense because of Facebook and, and COVID uh, mandates. Yeah. I, I just, as I was reading this article last night, I, I think we're a long way from fully understanding what the modern world has done to us. Agreed. We, we might be decades from fully understanding it. Maybe we'll never understand it. Maybe it's too complex, but I was just thinking of Bill Maher all of a sudden because he used to mock people who talk about, um, you know, people say there's so much change taking place. And he'd say, come on, the biggest change in human history happened between like 1830 and 1900. Um, prior to like 1830, Human beings hadn't been living that much differently than they were 10,000 years ago, really, in terms of the ability to travel and communicate. There's still horse and, you know, how fast a horse could get something somewhere. Um, and then everything changed with rail and telegraph and all that sort of stuff and the combustible engine and the, uh, um, um, industrial revolution. All that happened. But the rise of the dirigible, of course. He used to say that. I don't think that's true anymore. I no. think the change that has happened in the last 10 years around Communication, social media, all that sort of stuff is the biggest change 
that has ever happened to human beings ever. And, and, and we're not even close to understanding what it's doing to us yet. Oh, my gosh, that reminds me. I've got some unbelievable uh, tape from the World Economic Forum. This historian talking about the, you know, the postmodern metaverse, high tech humans and machines meshing, uh, the, the AI, the, the, what do you call it? The, uh, the universe, the continuum, the, uh, the, 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 the turning point, the switch, the big switch off. The, uh, the <laughs> conundracy, the uh, what the hell? The, the when the, when the machines start to teach themselves oh, and learn and the uh, what is it? The synergy? No, it's the uh, the the equilibrium. No, the I, I big can't orgasm. <laughs> I can't <laughs> big orgasm. I can't remember what the term is. The singularity. There you go. There Good it one. is. But anyway, he's talking about this, and I, I tell you what, it makes me want to wanna head for the hills. Yeah. I think we're in the opening. Say wow, we're in the second inning of the modern computerized world making us insane. Wow, so all this change, I was just talking about the biggest change in human history, you think we're in the second inning of that happening? Oh, yeah, you're going to be hooked up to some uh, machine drained in your vital fluids in some organ farm before you know it, with computers <laughs> drilling holes in your brain, using your energy to harness some supercomputer wow. run by Bill Gates and the WHO, I'm telling you. <laughs> Sweater putting the chips in you. <laughs> With the vaccine? Yeah, exactly. You know, it exactly. Goes without saying. Um, you have any thoughts on this? Uh, you think the, the what's making us so murdery? Joe might be right. It might just be gang stuff. Partly. Partly. That might be the bulk of it. 